It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Ken is a nationally syndicated automotive journalist and photographer who has been in and around the industry for over 30 years. So tune in for your fill of automotive information and entertainment with your automotive ringmaster, Ken Chester. And it certainly feels like a circus around here sometimes. <laughs> Welcome to the second hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host and automotive tour guide, Ken Chester. This hour, we're going to talk about China and the automotive industry in the United States. And it's not how you think. I'm going to share the latest news from the courts about the activity around relaxing the tougher fuel economy standards. And this is going to have an immediate impact on the industry. And then finally, a look at Toyota's cleaner and connected vision for the future. Of course, this is another full hour at full strength with, road, with the Roadworthy Drive crew. Jack at the controls and Sasha at mic number two. Hey, peoples. Hello. All right. Hello. All right. And they're ready and up for discussion for this hour, right? I'm ready. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> and with that rousing <laughs> response, before we get to our trip for the tidbits from the parts bin, you are welcome to add your voice to the conversation. Call or text the Roadworthy Driveline at 872-222-9793 or email me, that's Ken, at roadworthydrive.net. Now, from the parts bin, um, I want to talk about, I'm going to try to get to it here. i got lots to talk about. Ooh, it would help if you had the right pile. Let's try that. There you go. <laughs> um, how do you feel about Alexa, Jack? Um. I have a serious problem with the smart speakers. I really do. Yep. So I guess if I told you that Alexa wanted a closer working relationship with you, <laughs> you you'd be a little bit off put. If uh, Alexa well, was well, hold on. Not only would I be put off by that, mm -hmm. but my wife would be put off with that <laughs> as well. Okay. Because for... I'm sorry, this gets into um, a whole nother relationship that goes totally against. Alexa, Alexa gives clingy a whole new meaning. Yeah. Like she could get, you know. Okay. The term you need to know is ubiquitous computing. Oh, oh, no. That just sounds it strange. Is the, it is the idea of embedding computational capability in everyday objects, allowing them to communicate and in turn reduce the user's need to react with a computer. In other words, an outgrowth of the Internet of I Things. I don't need my refrigerator talking to me. Oh, no, it already does, though. And so, like, is it going to be like Miss, you know, Pee-wee's Playhouse where, like, the chair talks to you and the TV talks to you? No, and no, no. Here's what we got. You know, Alexa, the goal for Alexa, for Amazon's Alexa, mm -hmm. is to be at the heart of the consumer's journey from the house to the car and then to the smartphones when they're leaving the car. I've heard of being connected, but maybe I don't want to be connected that much. I'm sorry, but the whole thing with Alexa and, and big data, as we've talked about here before. Yes, we have. Is I don't need them listening to every, somebody listening to every conversation that goes on in my house. I mean, I understand where they're trying to get to the heart of the consumer, which would you have to actually understand that as we want to know everything that you're doing so we can incorporate that into our next round of advertising. So um, a little sensitive much, are we? 
lot a sensitive. Lot. Well, then you're going to love this part. Oh, boy. General Motors and Volvo have partnered with Amazon to offer customers in-vehicle delivery of packages. Now, we've United talked States. about that, where they, where they deliver it to the trunk, right? Right. We, we've talked about it. Yeah. But the technology is there that, that OnStar or whatever somebody else has can unlock the door or pop the trunk. My concern with this is... I don't care who's delivering it, whether it's the FedEx guy, the UPS guy, or whoever. Joe's delivery service. Do I, do I want somebody being able to rifle through my trunk or my SUV or my pickup truck just to put a package in there? Okay, number one, they've got this pretty well controlled. First of all, you have to be a member of either the Amazon Prime or a service of OnStar to even start. Second, it's an opt-in. It's not an automatic thing. Third, uh, it's pretty well controlled. It's a one-time access, number one. Mm-hmm. So it's not like once I got access, so sad, too bad. Right. Your car is just unlocked yeah. for anybody. Um, and then third, it's a matter of an app that they let you know when the delivery is going to happen. It happens. It's confirmation. Believe it or not, they've actually done this in Germany um, with Audi before this. And how was the reception on that? I mean, um, how did people... They don't say. Uh. They, the, the article doesn't say, okay. but they're rolling it out to 37 cities, roughly now, okay. in the United States, with the goal of rolling it out nationwide. Um, they said, and I quote, the service is available on more than 7 million 2015 or newer Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac vehicles for GM. They don't say which Volvo models are available with it. Okay. Sasha, I want to ask you a question. Yes, sir. I'm noticing a pattern with Ken's information here. Mm-hmm. And it's got nothing It's nothing against Ken. Right. It's basically against the people that write this. Why are we not, not teaching reporting anymore? I, because if you and I can think up common sense questions that should be in an article that when you ask the question, the reporter should be able to think okay. what other people would think, we're not getting that. But hold on a minute. You're assuming that the company in which they interviewed and was writing about, was making the information available. He has a point. Um, Yeah, if the information's not available. I mean, I've done car reviews where certain statistical information was not available at the time, and there's no other way to get it. If the manufacturer doesn't give it to me, I don't have it and can't get it until they're ready to give it. Example, uh, EPA mileage estimates on a particular engine combination – um, measurements, um, trunk space measurements sometimes. Um, at the time at the time that the vehicle was reviewed, which would have been early in its cycle, may not be available. So I'm not going to put this on the reporters, but you're in a world where things, and admittedly are happening so fast, you're going to write a column to report this stuff. You're not always going to have every last little exhaustive detail. And that's why people tune in to us, Jack, so they can get every little exhaustive detail um i don't even know how many people even knew about this in particular that we just reported Mm -hmm. so you know very often we're at the cutting edge and we're the only ones that you're hearing this about i've got a question yes you do um (laughs) of course i didn't say i am a question i said i have a question now what could you possibly be ordering 
that you need it delivered to your car. Well, and not necessarily like, are we talking about people that maybe live in a bad neighborhood that couldn't be dropped off at their home? Well, it, I don't or, think it, I don't think neighborhood matters at this point. We've had so many porch burglaries or porch shopping, as they call. Oh it, yeah, the, you know that people are saying to heck with this. I'll give you access to my car. Put it in there. Because they may not oh. be able to deliver it to work, particularly if you work in a factory or something or in a situation that is um, highly secure where the delivery person just ain't getting in there to get it to you. So we're talking about something because cause I have heard about that, that where they were actually stealing packages. Mm-hmm. Like straight video, off the, the pro- folks got video. Yeah. So of folks ripping them off on their yep. porch. So now this is a security issue. Then. Yes. So people are just electing to do this because they no longer feel comfortable leaving or having packages left on their porch. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And and honestly, we will track this to see um, just what the take rate is. We don't know. Obviously, the German uh, uh, experiment had to have gone well for them to think about launching it in the United States. Well, that I'm, went badly. They would not be doing it here. That's I, true. I worry about... And I mean, I don't know, but I mean, if you've got electronics, if you ordered electronics and you're putting a trunk in the summertime or in, in the, or even the winter, wintertime yeah, or the even wintertime. in the wintertime, you know, depending on how long it's going to be there. Holidays so like yeah. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, chocolate. Yeah. In exactly. summer. Val- val- yeah. Valentine's Day. <laughs> just just saying. Yeah. Ooh, no. OK. That, that, right. Yeah. Messy, I, messy, mess. I, no, I had a different kind of thought. Sending somebody a gift on Valentine's Day, but I continue. Um, <laughs> mobility. Okay. okay. Really quick. Um, highly automated cars. Uh, ABI research forecasts that by 2025, uh, roughly a little more than seven years from now, there'll be roughly 8 million vehicles on the road at either level three or level four automation, which is semi autonomous. And some even at level five, which is fully autonomous. By what? 2025. Nice. But consider, that's only half of what they sell in a year, and that's cumulative. Okay. They sell between, on the low end, 12 to high end, 17 million new vehicles a year. So still a drop in the bucket, and there's over 250 million vehicles, retail vehicles on the road in the United States. Still a drop in the bucket. But they're coming, I guess is the point. And... Uh, that's only going to accelerate um, as time goes on. Coming up, China policy in the U.S. auto industry is going to hurt us more than them. You are listening to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is America's premier automotive news and information talk show.
Lightning, the optional Super Commando 440 V8. The 1967 Plymouth Fury is your kind of automobile, and that makes it pretty hard to resist. If you're just tuning in, welcome to Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host this hour, Ken Chester. Why did that sound like a cheerleading routine? It did, actually, yes. Hey, Plymouth was out to win you over. I understand that. Yeah, I, I will say this. That Commando 440 V8, uh-huh. most temperamental engine they ever made. Well, and I will tell you something. I love the old advertising commercials. I Thank really you. do. Because the ones today, I'm sorry, are just so monotonous they, they, and so... All you get, you just plug in your 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 vehicle into any one of the standard formatted commercials and go. I, I yeah. admit my personal favorite. Yeah, sixty two Studebaker Lark commercial. Yeah, loved. But then, that again, but, but then again, uh, the the Chevy commercial, the one that we first played when you and I got together and started uh-huh. the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 53. probably my my favorite yep. one of mm-hmm. all time. And then, of course, there was the seventy seven Ford commercial. No, 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 no. Y'all, you both know my favorite commercial <laughs> yeah, of all no, time. Yeah, let it go. No, no. no we're it's not a gonna, tire commercial. Yeah, we're not going to play that Goodyear commercial. <laughs> we don't want a lot oh, of hate mail. Ken? Yes. You mean this one? Oh, no. Oh, yes. That one, that's the Ford Yes. Yep. Yeah. That, Incredible. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic, because if we could see tomorrow, back then, knowing they weren't going to make passenger cars anymore. Right. I don't know. I, I, that's incredible would not be my response. <laughs> no. Just saying. Okay, people. We, we need to talk trade policy here for a minute. Something boring. Um, he said it, not me. But it's important, though. Yes, it is. It's important, though. You would think in this world that, you know, oh, uh, tariffs against China. Okay, fine. Uh, people, let me break this down for you. In the world of automotive manufacturing, it is truly a global sourcing organization. They source all over the world. And it's not one way. You know, it's not as easy as, well, we won't let their stuff come in here. They don't let our stuff go over there. Uh, People, let me break this to you. There are American components being made every day shipped to China for inclusion and manufacture of vehicles shipped all over the world. And likewise, there are Chinese vehicles and equipment shipped to the United States for sale here. Yep. And a lot of the nameplates that would, you'd be amazed uh, are Chinese vehicles. They don't have Chinese names on them. That's true. Uh, let me give you an example. The Cadillac's CT6 Hybrid, their full-size car, their hybrid full-size car. That's being made right now, correct? Right now. Okay. China. Yep. Buick Envision, China. Volvo S60, China. You wouldn't know it. Now, here's a bombshell for you. Can you name a country that stands to gain or get hurt the most due to these tariffs? Probably the United States. No. Really? Really. Who? Germany. Okay. Why? Because one of the leading exporters of vehicles to China... Mm-hmm. has an American factory, BMW. Oh. Ah. And a uh, Chinese company, people who own Volvo, Geely Motors, mm-hmm. in the process of 
opening a brand spanking new plant in South Carolina. Brand new Greenfield plant. We reported on it here down through the years as they were making progress. It's about to open now. Mm -hmm. And there's this little issue um, of Fiat Chrysler helping a particular Chinese manufacturer get a foothold in the United States. And I'm still convinced that uh, Great Wall Motor is going to buy them outright. Really? Yeah. Okay. Now, that's me talking. For the record, there's nothing that's been announced. Okay. So I want to be you, clear on it. When you're talking about this Chinese company, mm-hmm. what do they have to offer? Money. Are they going to bring their products over, their, their vehicles over? Well, okay. This is all hypothetical. Okay. Okay. But I'm, I'm going to take a moment. What you get if you buy Fiat Chrysler outright is United States assembly plants, a dealer network, and existing products. They'll keep Jeep. They might keep Ram, but everything else is on the table, which means they're Canadian plants. They're Mexican plants. You hit the ground with a company that's got a footprint that needs money. So what do you do? You bring your technology, everything you know about autonomous cars, battery-operated electric cars, and that. And you bring your money. And you update it. You hit the ground running a lot faster than you would from a greenfield situation building from scratch. Remember, Toyota and Mazda is currently building a factory down south uh, in an area where they already have suppliers, and it's going to take them three years. And these people know how to do it and have been doing it a lot. It will be Toyota's 11th factory in the United States, and it's going to take them three years. Wow. Now, now you're going to build something from scratch, new suppliers, new everything? That'll take you way longer than that. Take you a lot longer than and that. And a lot more money. You buy a company, you start ahead of the game. You just got to modernize things and update things. Plus, you've got a dealer body starved per product. So you keep the good stuff, you get rid of the bad stuff, and you bring in your stuff to shore stuff up. That's what Nissan and Renault did with Mitsubishi. So what you're basically saying to me is what they're going to do is they're going to come up with a whole new car line over here, but bring their technology over. So all they really have to do is figure out what they're going to put it in. They could, or they can just rebadge them as existing Dodges and, you know, Chryslers and stuff. That's been going on for years across all the automakers. Uh, We just talked about uh, the Toyota, new Toyota Yaris, in the last show, mm-hmm. that uh, is basically a Mazda, as is the Ford Fiesta, based on a Mazda design. And uh, Fiat's new 124 Roadster, Mazda Miata. So this is not new. This has been going on in the industry for years. But there's so many companies, and it's not complete, fully completed cars. It's technology. It's things that may actually mess up American companies investing in China um, to get ahead so it's, it, it's not a necessarily a good thing. So there's that. Plus, in the middle of all of this, China said, you know what? We're going to get rid of our joint venture requirement. But it's not that easy. China wants to be known as the electric car manufacturing uh, center of the world. And by actually taking their foot up off of uh, requiring joint ventures, they're going to actually attract more investment and get to their goal quicker. So they may actually benefit way more, but not the way you would think. So food for thought on that. Next, the courts uphold current EPA fuel economy regulations. <laughs> Whoops. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is heard exclusively on the Roadworthy Drive radio network. 
to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. This is the downhill side of this hour, Roadworthy Drive. Thanks for dropping in. I'm Ken Chester. For those of you who want or need more than your fair share of the road, check out the show website, and that's roadworthydrive.com. Video clips of our behind-the-scenes antics, audio of past shows, and more available right there. We are now on Google Play, so you can hear your favorite automotive talk show on your mobile device as well. Sasha keeps things light and lively on social media during the week between shows, so be sure to drop by and find out for yourself. Now, we've been keeping track of the goings-on with respect to corporate average fuel economy regulations, and I assumed that the standards indeed were locked down through 2022. Well, I found out that wasn't exactly true. However, a recent federal court decision upheld those regulations and cast doubt of the administration's ability to roll back the 2025 regulations as well. And we're going to talk about that right here. Okay, um, there, are two point, there are two points of view. One, the automakers argue that because of cheap gasoline, that consumers are buying bigger vehicles, which through no fault to the automakers, they're building what people want, and therefore Washington should roll back these standards. There are the other people who uh, are concerned about climate change, are concerned about their environment, they say, you know what? Um, rolling back those standards are a bad idea. And then there's a third group that people don't understand. It takes the auto industry long lead times to make major changes. In other words, for them to meet standards in 2025, it don't happen in 2023. Yep. This is something they've been working on for almost 10 years to get there incrementally. And anybody that's had a chance to read the EPA fuel economy standards regulations, they're complicated. Just some light reading. Yeah, they're complicated. Um, and it does already cut light trucks a break in its formulation. Mm -hmm. So it, you get to a blended um, fuel economy standard. And it's, uh, it's, it's complicated. And when you say blended, we're talking about every single vehicle in their portfolio that qualifies to be in this standard mm -hmm. to come up with the Mild. corporate average. Yes, sir. Okay. Now, there are two, there are two um, types of penalties. There are penalties the manufacturer has to pay for failing to meet it. And then there's this little thing called the gas guzzler tax. Bet you never heard of it. Oh, I, oh I've heard of it. Yeah. Very few cars end up having to do that, but the reason why that tax is levied is because the vehicle or the manufacturer falls short of the corporate average fuel economy standard for that year. And obviously, it's disproportionate luxury manufacturers with larger cars and bigger engines or more performance-oriented uh, tend to get hit. Um, typically, I've seen that rate right around $1,700, $1,800. Wow. And the consumer gets to pay that. Now, the automakers complain, oh, it'd be more out of pocket for us. No, no. That's right on the MSRP. You get to pay that, Mr. Uh, consumer, if you want it. Now, so are you only paying the gas guzzler tax once? Yes. Okay. When you buy the vehicle. Now, wow. that, that fee um, 
was ordered by Congress to be adjusted for inflation. So they're, they're complaining that they could be ending up almost double what it used to be. So there's that. Uh, and then there are the penalties. Um, there were penalties that were set up that automakers had to pay for, for not meeting the standard. Now, how they got around it back in the day is you could buy credits. In other words, if you had a company, an automaker, who exceeded the requirements, mm-hmm. they could sell that, that excess as credits to companies who didn't. Okay. So they get so basically, if you don't meet it by your standard, you're going to pay a price for it, and you trade. It basically it's an incentive to the companies. You want to stop spending the money, invest the money to meet the standard, and you know if you exceed the standard, there is a way to be rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. You can sell these credits to companies that don't. Um, the current administration wanted to eliminate all of that, and I'm not really wonderfully in favor of it. Here's why. I think that fuel economy standards are a good thing. Um, Economists will argue with you that the better approach is to raise fuel prices. That if you raise fuel prices high enough, it will take people into other technologies like electric and non-gasoline. And that could work. But the problem with that is that it tends to penalize poor folk. Why? Because the people who have the least means are usually driving the most fuel-inefficient things. They're older, they're larger, they have higher mileage, so they're not operating as efficiently as they once did new. Um, And these poor folks are the ones that get stuck if you go that way. You know, if you're driving a 20-year-old Ford Crown Victoria, because that's all you could afford, and it gets maybe 20 miles to the gallon, but because, you know, you've raised gas prices now, which instead of being around here right around $3 now it's 450 or 5 the people with the least amount of money to afford it now they can't afford to trade no nope. and they can't afford to run it exactly so that puts them that puts them in a real bad place so there are some uh social costs with that okay so how do we actually solve this then well my biggest problem is i think we let the standard stand don't raise them. Don't do I any mean, of that no. Stuff. I say where they're at now, mm-hmm. um, particularly with the regulations through 2025, mm-hmm. don't reduce them. Don't freeze them. Don't roll them back. Yeah, just leave the legislation the way it is. The irony is, is that the electric vehicle, in terms of cost per mile, becomes more affordable. It's no longer a pollution issue alone or let's reduce our dependence on foreign oil anymore since we are the number two producer of crude oil in the world right now, those are not the issues. But the cost of ownership, the cost of operation, the fact you ain't got fluids, moving parts, any of this stuff, uh, makes the electric car more and more affordable. As the cost of electric batteries come down, and as the mileage that you get between charges go up, and as the time to charge goes down with these high-speed, high-voltage charges that are coming to market now, it's only a matter of time that those three things converge and you have uh, range at parity with the average internal combustion engine. And with the falling prices, you will get it down to the price. So I think it's only a matter of time, and I really think that's the way we should go. Well, and I'm still curious to know, when we start making these electric vehicles, mm-hmm. if they don't have all these moving parts, mm-hmm. if they don't have all of this 
fluid-based usage mm-hmm. and the rest of it, mm-hmm. is the cost of my car going to go down or is it going to stay the same? I would estimate that in, in some aspects it will go down. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes with the improving technology and the better utilization of batteries and the parts that are made. The more of them you make, the lower the cost. So if anything, I think in the long term, they become more affordable, not less. Well, and I still think you have an incredibly toxic situation with the batteries. Uh, not as much as you do with all the fluids you do in an internal combustion <laughs> yeah. engine right now. Not nearly. Well. I mean, antifreeze and motor oil and heaven knows what else. And the and your lead-acid car battery. Mm-hmm. At last, Toyota's cleaner and connected vision. This is Roadworthy Drive. Drive is a cornerstone of the Roadworthy Drive radio network. This is the last segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. One word. Toyota. Over the months we've been together, I've discussed various automakers and their plans, or lack of plans, for the future. For this part of the program, it's all about Toyota. These folks are planners. I believe I read somewhere years ago that they had 50 and 100 year plans. Strategic plans. Didn't we also talk about this a couple months ago, too? Not particularly, but these folks, they plan. Okay. The company is serious about its impact on the environment as well as the connectivity of its cars. And we're going to look at both during this segment right here. And let's start with this. Um, the headline is, Toyota connected Europe to bring advanced mobility services to the European market. They've got a startup that will extend Toyota's connected global mobility solutions business with products and services, get this now, tailored to the European market. And the first thing they're hiring is 35 to 50 data scientists. Basically, what they're going to do is mate big data to the needs, um, regardless of how you define mobility, to the countries they serve in Europe. Now, this is a subset of their outfit. Um, let me get this now. Um, Toyota, well, it's, it's also part of their Toyota Mobility Services platform. These folks ain't playing. they got a whole platform of, that they're developing of mobility choices. Remember we talked about that ownership is but one choice. Correct. And even Toyota has come to that now. But what they're talking about, this is actually a subsidiary of Toyota Connected North America. Okay. Toyota, Toyota's approach, in a way, is similar to Ford's, but not exactly. They are mating big data, what they learn from their cars, because we talked about connectivity, with what trends and what people are looking for to offer different choices to different people in different situations, which would include ownership, hailing, sharing, and some other stuff that uh, doesn't even exist yet. They're not playing, folks. 
Now, they plan to partner with their retailers and distributors in the region. Makes sense because as this model changes, the dealers are going to need a way to continue to be in business. And if the ownership model is broken or no longer sustainable, I mean, and there's only so much repair service you're going to have in the years to come, particularly if you're going electric, they're going to need some way to stay relevant. Well, and the other thing, too, is right now, at least in the United States that I am aware of, service is pretty much what carries the dealership. Well, parts and service and warranty work. Correct. But remember, we've talked about this. On average, there's 148 parts to a regular internal combustion engine. 148? Yeah. There are 20 in an electric motor. Yes. No fluids. Yep. No belts. No nasty exhaust. And no heat. And I'm still arguing how, how do you heat the thing in the winter, but go on. Uh, the, the same, same way, way you use any an electric, space heater. Electric heater? Space heater. That's easy. Well at, well, at least that way my windshield would be cleaner faster. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking at shared mobility and fleet management solutions for consumers, businesses, governments, and other stakeholders. They, they are talking about being more than a car company. They want to be a mobility solutions company. And that's the same thing the Ford Motor Company said. So you're seeing auto manufacturers transcend into providers of mobility no matter what that means. Well, and see, I think by them keeping their finger on the pulse and understanding that the times are changing, what the consumer is looking towards in the future, it's imperative that they remain fluid like that. Mm -hmm. Let me throw this curve at you. Remember we talked about um, in the last hour, we talked about how – Detroit is leaving cars, mm-hmm. and the Asians are doubling down. Yep. Toyota is in the process of spending $170 million in Mississippi in an existing plant to build the next generation of, and in the words of my executive producer, wait for it, the Toyota Corolla sedan. Going to create an additional 400 jobs. Wow. Did I mention one hundred seventy? million dollars to build uh, the next generation of an existing sedan in the United States for sale. Okay. I want to make that point clear. And that will happen over the next 12 months. It's part of Toyota's commitment to spend $10 billion in the United States over the next five years. That's a healthy boost for the economy, too. Always is. But as the boy says... There's more. Toyota reaffirms its commitment to a sustainable future. Now, you think it's a big deal that a company puts out, oh, you know, their environmental statement? Mm-hmm. Okay. Toyota is so serious, they didn't just put out an um, environmental statement. They have a carbon position statement, something I've never heard of, biodiversity position statement, huh? materials position statement, and a water Position statement. Wait, 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 wait. Back up. Yeah. What was that? Carbon, biodiversity, materials, and water. For North America, for North America, a position statement on each of those factors. Okay, back this truck up. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, carbon. To address climate change, they aspire to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from operations. 
to zero by 2050. Oh. Yeah, they're not playing. Uh, Pledge to reduce vehicle emissions 90% from 2010 to 2050 by offering vehicles with alternative powertrains and to expand plug-in hybrids, electric vehicles, and fuel cell vehicle infrastructure. Biodiversity, the one thing everybody went, why? The company pledges to conserve natural habitat and a partner with third parties to protect globally recognized hotspots. We'll engage 500 people per year in projects that protect biodiversity and work to protect threatened and endangered species living near its sites. Wow. But we're not done. Materials. They want to conserve natural resources, eliminating waste disposal and sharing. They want to reduce packing material by 5% by 2021. This is all in North America, people, not around the world, right here. And then finally, water. They want to, they have pledged to reduce the amount of water they use by incorporating waterless manufacturing technologies, conservation, and recycling. And they want to be that by 2050. So there you go. Their cleaner future, a connected future. With that, we come to the end of the second and final hour. On behalf of the Roadworthy Drive crew, thanks for listening. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation. 